Good afternoon, and welcome to Bible Quest, the Wednesday edition. We're really glad that you're able to join us this afternoon. Tonight, we have an interesting topic. We're going to be talking about instrumental music uh, for this afternoon's podcast. Joining me today, we have Jeff Smelser from Exton, Pennsylvania. How are you doing today, Jeff? Hey, Chase. Good afternoon. Doing well. Good, good to have you on. And Joe Works from Elmira, New York. How are you doing this afternoon? I am good. Good to be with you both. Good. Good to have you today. Um, and uh, behind the scenes, we have Drew DeGrotto. Uh, and by way of that, um, we just want to let everyone know uh, that we have uh, started recently doing a call-in part to this show. If you have any questions or comments that you would like to voice, um, you will need to get off of Facebook if you're watching us on Facebook. And you can either go to BibleQuest.tv or you may go to the BibleQuest uh, app or something like that. Um, and if you're watching via that on the Wednesday edition, you can raise your hand. You'll see that somewhere on the screen. And then that'll go to our webcast engineer, Drew DeGrotto, and then he can bring you on and uh, you can voice your comments or your opinions that way. Or if you would prefer, you can also leave a comment on Facebook. I've got that pulled up right here on my left. And, um, or you can leave them on the Zoom app, and we will try our best to get to that. Uh, well, guys, um, many of us, and the three of us that are on right now, our specific churches, I know, one of the things we do whenever we sing on Sundays or Wednesdays or whenever we're together, one of the things I guess I should say we don't do is use instruments. Uh, wouldn't that be correct? Well, of course, it depends on what you mean by instruments. Well, I mean instruments maybe in the way that most of the world uses the word instruments. And so what would I mean by that? Musical instruments like the piano or trumpets or drums. Uh, or, or a guitar or, or a rock band, you know, that comes in and uh, a worship, a praise brand, uh, band type thing. We don't have any of that. Yeah. Um, and it's not just because we don't like those things. Uh, Jeff, I, I think in our earlier meeting, we were mentioning and talking about that you used to have a guitar that you gave to your granddaughter. Uh, that's because I wasn't any good at it. Well, okay. <laughs> and Joe, to my knowledge, you're not musically inclined either, and I'm not. So maybe. I, I, I learned at a very young age to play the radio. Oh. That's about, that's about the limit of my musical inclinations. Gotcha. All right. But are you old enough to have ever learned to play eight tracks? Yes, I did. Yes. <laughs> Well, and all the point I'm trying to make is it's not that we have something against musical instruments, but that we have convictions for a reason um, as to why we're not using musical mechanical instruments in the worship service. And so uh, we actually have a couple of different ways that we get there from the brethren uh, that are from the brothers that are on the podcast today. So we're all going to share that with each other. Um, and so if it's OK, guys, I'm going to kick us off, maybe just go through some of the reasons why. Uh, in my opinion, scripture teaches we shouldn't be using mechanical instruments in worship. And then I'd love to hear your all's thoughts on that. And again, the audience, I, I'd love for you to chime in, make comments, um, and you'll, you'll more than welcome to uh, call in as well. So uh, guys, let's go to work this afternoon. Um, is there anything else by way of introduction that anyone wants to add? Uh, well, just that we already do have some participation from some of our viewers. Uh, one viewer was noting Joe's reference to playing the radio, and a viewer said he doesn't think Joe's very good at that either. <laughs> oh, man. Wow. <laughs> well, one thing about my life is that I've been consistent. <laughs> I think you'd be very good at playing either the radio or the guitar if you put your mind to it, Joe. <laughs> uh. 
All right, guys. So uh, let's go to work. This is an encouraging um, way I, I kind of like to go about this subject. Um, there's a lot of things that we see in the Old Testament that I think contrast really well to the New Testament. And um, I think music is one of those, but to just kind of build our way of getting there. Uh, let's just look at a couple of these. The temple, the temple of the Old Testament. You can go over to First Kings, the eighth chapter. Uh, this is whenever Solomon eventually builds the temple that David had wanted to build for God back in 2 Samuel 7. And uh, 1 Kings 8 and verse 19, it says, Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son who will be born to you, he will build the house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled his word, which he spoke, for I have risen in place of my father David and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised and have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. There I have set a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord, which he made with our fathers when he brought from the land of Egypt. Solomon's dedicating this temple to God, this physical place that the people would go to be able to worship God. They'd be teaching there. That's where the sacrifices would be made in the city of David in Jerusalem. It's a very physical uh, temple that we saw in the Old Testament. Uh, and guys, in the New Testament, how does the scriptures in the New Testament talk about the temple? What are some of the things the New Testament says about that? Well, we we are our very selves described as the temple of God, God dwelling within us. Yeah, that's right. Uh, my mind goes to a couple of different passages, one of which, uh, or what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? Uh, for we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Paul's making the point very clear. We're the temple of the living God now. The, the Christians, those that have been baptized and, and repented of our sins that are in the kingdom of God, we're the temple of the living God now. Um, this is the passage you have on the screen now that comes to my mind very often is First Peter 2, 4, and 5. Yeah, uh, another really good one. And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Uh, so we, we do see a shift in, in some ways from this aspect of this very physical temple that was in Jerusalem. It was You were tied to Jerusalem if you were going to be there uh, to make those sacrifices and et cetera. And, and before now, you leave this point, I'll throw in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 20, and 20 through 22, where Paul talks about the Gentiles becoming a part of the body of Christ and he talks about how they have become a part of the house of God. So verse 21, in whom each several building, in Jesus Christ, each several building is framed together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built together for a habitation of God in the Spirit. So there's the church again being pictured as the house of God or the temple. Yeah, yeah, very good. And then maybe, um, Go ahead, Joe. Just briefly. Uh, so the passage that you had listed uh, on the, the previous slide, that column, uh, we look at some of those First Corinthians uh, three. Uh, I guess I was thinking more of First Corinthians six. I, I looked at it wrong to begin with. Uh, in First Corinthians six, you, you have even our own physical bodies are described. So some of the New Testament passages will use temple language to describe us collectively, and others even talking about our own bodies being the temple. Well, yes. Yeah, First um, Corinthians 6, that would be right there in verses 19 and 20. That's another really helpful one. Yeah, great point. Hey, there are some other ones as well that uh, I think are helpful to just kind of see this picture that's being painted throughout the Bible, um, even going as far as the sacrifices. Um, 
I'm not going to turn there, but, but you can go to Numbers 28. Uh, I think another good one, I, I guess, would be Leviticus, the 10th chapter, uh, is another good one that just talks about the different physical sacrifices that would have been being made as far as the goats and the lambs. Um, there were daily sacrifices. There were weekly sacrifices. There, there were yearly sacrifices, and those are all laid out throughout the Old Testament. And the New Testament similarly speaks to this idea in a spiritual way, but also, again, in a physical way, as Joe was pointing out earlier, and in in we are still physically making sacrifices, and Jesus made and paid the ultimate physical sacrifice on the cross. But uh, my mind goes to Romans, the 12th chapter, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Um, Hebrews 13, 15, and 16, through him then let us continually offer up sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of lips that gives thanks to his name, and do not neglect doing good and sharing for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. And so uh, here is another way in which we see something, this, these physical sacrifices, but it is being fulfilled in a spiritual way in the new covenant. Um, still requiring something on our part, but there is still this contrast that we see from the old law to the new law. Maybe if I could... Thoughts or comments on that, guys? Yeah, i just jump in there and, and maybe to... to... My wording, and, and I'm sure there's some weakness in this, but uh, as I'm looking at these contrasts that you've already put on and then others that can and perhaps will be on the, the chart as well, um, one of the things that we notice in these are things are becoming more personal and more challenging. A lot of times people think of the difference in the Old Testament and New Testament. The Old Testament was really rigid and had a lot of rules and it was really tough. Well, look at these differences it's actually that the New Testament becomes more challenging. Uh, it's not something going on in a building, uh, but it's going on in my own life. Uh, it, seem, it seems to be much more personal and uh, maybe a greater sacrifice, a, a greater individual focus. Sure, and uh, I, I really like the way you put that. It's very personal here. You know, when it says, when Paul is telling us, at the, at the climax of Romans, really, in Romans 12, this is the climax of the letter. Your bodies are a living and holy sacrifice. That's personal. You've you got to figure out what that means. You've got to find a way to apply that. Um, and so for that reason, yeah, I completely agree. You just see a very physical side of this. Guys, I see comments coming in. Um, Y'all let me know if I'm missing them. Oh, yeah, here, here's one. Uh, here's a good question um, from Karen. She says, this may be off topic, but I have heard Christians say that listening to CDs of acapella spiritual songs and live acapella performances of psalms, hymns, etc. seems inappropriate to them. Uh, what are your thoughts? And I see that Joe is leaving as this question is being asked. So, uh, how, <laughs> this, is a good, this is a good question, and it's a very frequently asked question. I think the thing probably I would suggest we do is let's first of all establish whether or not we should be using instrumental music in our worship of God. And then let's save uh, a few minutes toward the end of the webcast to come back and talk about this particular question. All right. That sounds like a good plan. So we'll, uh, we'll circle back to that um, in just a second. Okay. Uh, very good. Thank you, Karen. We will address that. Um, and I'll, I'll kind of go through my PowerPoint here a little quickly. Um, so another one we see circumcision. Leviticus 12 and verse 3, very clearly on the eighth day, you need to circumcise your kids. 
this goes back to Genesis, the 17th chapter. This is the way God's covenant was established. Um, I can't quite remember. I should have looked it up earlier, guys, where even in the old covenant talks about circumcision of the heart. There was a purpose for this, yeah. um, but, it, but it shows God's people. If someone has that reference, that, that might be helpful. I want to say Deuteronomy 10, but let me check it. Okay. Um, and again, I, I'm just moving through this quickly. So if you're listening and, and if you're uh, if you're able to watch the podcast, I have the slide up here to jot these down if we don't spend enough time on them. Deuteronomy 10, 16. Deuteronomy 10, 16. Thank you, Joe. That, that talks about the circumcision of the heart. And again, the New Testament writers, they pick up on, on this idea. In Romans, the second chapter, Paul says, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. Colossians 2.11, and in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands and the removal of the body of the flesh of the circumcision of Christ. Um, and so I, I just think that's so cool to see those parallels, those, I guess, shadows and reflections from the old covenant to the new covenant. Um, another helpful one is even the warfare. For this, I really, I just wrote down the entire book of Joshua. You, you see them going into the land. They're conquering it. Uh, there, there's a physical warfare. But the New Testament writers, Paul especially, he hits on this idea of this spiritual warfare that Christians are going through. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Um, so, guys, is this, is this a logical conclusion so far, the, the different things we've been looking at? Is this a helpful comparison, seeing maybe some of the physical aspect things of the Old Testament and seeing still physical in the new Testament, but their spiritual role in the new Testament. Well, I, I'm going to, let's borrow a phrase from John Calvin, who's, who talked about the old Testament, physical things made with hands were pedagogical. That is, they were designed by God to teach something. What they were designed to teach was a spiritual meaning. And so if you look at your, your chart here, the physical temple in the Old Testament taught a spiritual concept of God with man that's realized in the church. The Old Testament sacrifices were to teach a spiritual concept realized both in, in the sacrifice of Christ and in our giving of ourselves. The Old Testament circumcision, the physical act of circumcision, was intended to teach a spiritual concept of a circumcision of the heart. We could go without think it's necessary, and we probably don't have time today to talk about, okay, how does circumcision uh, in the Old Testament relate to circumcision of the heart? But there's a point there. Uh, the warfare, you had God's people in the Old Testament uh, opposing those who were not God's people or specifically the idolatrous influence of those who were not God's people. And there's a spiritual concept there. I think maybe that word pedagogical that Calvin used is, is good here. Uh yeah, and um, so, so this logical thing we're doing here, I think it's fair and, and we're able to see this with our music. Um, in the Old Testament, I have several passages here. One, one of these from Exodus, even as early as Exodus. Miriam the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took the timbrel in her hand, and the women went out after her with timbrels and with dancing. And Miriam answered them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and his rider he is hurled into the sea. Second Samuel, the sixth chapter, whenever David goes to get the Ark of the Covenant from the house of Abinadab, he comes out and uh, he is dancing and he's using these instruments to praise God as they're transporting the Ark. 
uh, Second Chronicles 29, the rededication of, of Hezekiah in the temple, we see yet again uh, the, the instruments being used, physical, mechanical instruments, the lyre, the harp being used to praise God in song. When you get to the New Covenant, this is something that, that I believe they're picking up on as well. But again, I think there's a spiritual aspect to it. Ephesians, the fifth chapter, verse 18, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Well, how, how are we to accomplish being filled with the Spirit? Well, you speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord always giving thanks for all things in the name of our God and uh, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the father. And so we're, we're accomplishing this spiritual task that we are given by singing, making melody in our hearts. Now, if you have an interesting point uh, that, that I've heard you make from this text in regard to Psalm 33 and 137, if I'm not mistaken. So if you, if you're okay with it to make that point now, I think that'd be good. Well, yeah, sure. There's a lot of debate here where it says, um, where it says, well, first of all, you have the word Psalms and then you have the singing and making melody with your heart. And there's a lot of discussion about the, the, the word Psalmas and especially the verb Psalo and whether or not this means using instrumental music. And um, let me just turn the passage here real quickly. So the the word psalo, which is, if we were going to spell it in English, it would be P-S-A-L-L-O, uh, is, is related to the word psalmos, from which we get the word psalms. And it is a fact that in, in its earliest history, it had to do with plucking, like plucking a, a bow on a, uh, the string on a bow or, or plucking a musical instrument. And so sometimes people will say, well, this means to play an instrument. And then other people have said, well, no, by New Testament times, it had just come to mean sing. And it's true that the word evolved over time so as to go from the original meaning of plucking a string of some sort to modern Greek, where it only means sing, chant. And the question is, in the first century, in New Testament times, where was the evolution of that word? Um, and some say by the first century, it's only meant sing. But the fact is, you can look at the writers of the, uh, you can look in Plutarch, you can look at Lucian, you can look at Septuagint, which was translated a little before the New Testament. And you can find the word used both ways. You can find it being used of singing. You can find it being used of of playing an instrument. And so then we come to the New Testament itself, and in several places in the New Testament, it does seem to be singing. But here, Paul seems to be borrowing the language uh, from Psalm 33 in our English Bibles. And verse uh, 2, I think it is, give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Sing praises to him with a harp of ten strings. And if you look at the Greek translation of that passage and you compare it to Paul's Greek in Ephesians 5.19, it looks as if he is borrowing that language, but he substitutes the word heart with a harp of ten strings. And so it looks as if what Paul is doing is <clears throat> he is using the word in the sense of playing an instrument, but he's using it metaphorically. And he is saying the instrument that we're going to play is the heart 
which kind of goes to this contrast that you were making, Chase, between there are these Old Testament things that that were uh, that that were things made with hands, physical, the temple, that taught a spiritual lesson, and uh, and then Paul then hits on the spiritual lesson. Let this, you know, in the Old Testament, sing for joy. Well, you you get a bunch of tambourines and trumpets, and you're going to get some joyful feelings, but those joyful feelings are not necessarily from the heart toward God. But now Paul is saying, and and they ought to be. To be clear, they ought to have been. But it was a it was a mechanical means of teaching the people a spiritual concept, and now what Paul emphasizes is now use your heart as the instrument. Yeah, very good. Uh, I, I remember the first time you made that point. I thought that was so powerful. I'll, I'll tell you something. I I would I, when I was a young preacher, I would read in the in the writers of the 1800s, and they would make that point. They would say that the heart is the instrument here. And I, I didn't get it. I thought, oh, I don't know why they're saying that. And uh, I was kind of fascinated with the idea that maybe Psalo by the first century just meant sing. Uh, but at some point over the years, it just dawned on me. It clicked with me. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying, use your heart as the instrument. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that is such a good admonition for us as well, uh, that, that when we're singing praises to God, it needs to be from the heart, because if not, it is vain worship. It is not pleasing to God. Uh, Joe, did you have something to add there? Well, uh, let me uh, present another view that I've heard on, on this, or, or maybe a, uh, an additional thought that might challenge some of what was said. Uh, so I'll, I'll just pretend that I'm this person. I, I don't have any problem with what you're saying there, but this verse doesn't prohibit being a, an instrument. I mean, God wanted people to sing from the heart in the Old Testament as well. Uh, and in those Old Testament passages, in those Psalms, you have instruments being used. So why, you know, if there's no prohibition here for it, uh, why can't we use it? Yeah, I think that's a common common fallacy that a lot of people have that just because the Bible doesn't say it uh, or because the Bible doesn't say it, it gives me kind of free reign to do whatever I want in that, in that category. Um, That's a pretty common fallacy, but we understand we we can't operate that way in any other circumstance in life. Uh, We we give our kid $20 to go get milk bread and uh, even a thing of cookies, maybe they're supposed to get those things. If they come back with those three things, plus a whole bunch of other stuff, we're going to be pretty irritated because they only had the authority. They only had the right to get what we asked for. And so this, if taken strictly, and I believe taken contextually uh, and taken the way it means, it would only allow us to be using our voices uh, because we are, as um, it points out there, singing and making melody with your heart. We're not, playing anything but we're singing from the heart which i, I believe would be um acapella music sing, singing without the accompaniment of instruments yeah so, i'll oh, go ahead joe well no you, you go ahead and then i'll correct you <laughs> no if we go back to chase your your earlier parallels say taking the temple for example um once we have the reality the spiritual house of god of which we are are a part uh, we don't then go back and build something like the Old Testament physical temple and call that the house of God also. 
um, we think of the incense in the Old Testament, which um, you know represents prayer. We see that in Revelation, the fifth chapter, and verse eight, and the eighth chapter, and I've forgotten what verse. Um, that connection. There was a, this incense that they would burn, and this sweet smoke would arise. And what a beautiful way to 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 represent the idea of prayers going up to God. Uh, it taught that concept. But now uh, in Christ, Christ is the body. The, Paul talks about the Old Testament shadows and says, but the body is Christ. Now that we have the body, the real thing, the true, then we don't go back and burn incense along with our prayers. Some would, some would, but I think it's, <coughs> I think it's a failure to understand what the purpose of those things was, that they were right. pedagogical, and that they are not the real thing. Um, so, so Jeff, we lost Jeff for a second. Yeah, go ahead, Joe. Uh, so let me maybe reword this and, and tell a brief story that might help at least explain my my take on this. Uh, several years ago, I was uh, sitting with a fellow preacher who was just a little bit younger than I and a preacher who was a little bit older than I. And we were having a discussion and the, the older preacher had asked the question uh, to the other one. And I'm sort of an innocent bystander at this point, And he asked him, he said, so why, why can we not use an instrument in, uh, in our worship? And the younger preacher responded, well, because Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 tells us to sing. And the older preacher said, no, that's not correct. Uh, and he said, well, but, but that is correct. Look at these verses. He said, but those verses is not why we don't use an instrument. Those verses only tell us what we should do. They don't, they don't tell us what we shouldn't do. Right. What, tell, what, what prohibits us from using them is the absence of any verse. Yeah. So Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 don't prohibit instrumental music. The fact that it's not listed in Ephesians 7 or, you know, yeah, Colossians right. 5, there's no such chapters. Uh, no, it, it's not in the scriptures. Yeah. Uh, this, this, this verse is authorizing. It's not deauthorizing anything. There's this fundamental attitude toward the Word of God that says, I look to the Word of God for my instruction, and this fundamental understanding of what worship is. Worship is recognizing God as sovereign, and, uh, and so in my worship, I should recognize God as sovereign by worshiping Him as He asks. If I start doing things that I think would just be a great idea, oh, this would really be cool, um, <coughs> then, then that's really not that's really not looking to God for direction. And so, um, when we come to the question of instrumental music, if I have this attitude, then I'm not going to just say, "Well, I like instrumental music, so I think God should like it." Yeah, that that, that I think is extremely critical. Is the the idea that God is going to accept whatever worship I offer up to Him? Because I feel like it's acceptable worship. Uh, that that puts me in the place of of, of authority, uh, expecting God to be the one who is going to accept worship at my instructions. Um, wow, I, it, it's just hard for me to even say that out loud. It 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 really. I, I'm forcing God to accept me on my terms. Who, who am I to do that? 
Well, you know, I sometimes I'm going to chase, chase a rabbit here, a little tangent. But sometimes when I'm going through Genesis chapter four with people, we get to the story of Cain and Abel, and and Cain's sacrifice was not acceptable to God. Abel's was, and I and I try to get, I'm trying to make the point to them that while both men were offering something to God, both men were doing something religious, uh, both men were giving up something that they had labored for. Um, only one was acceptable, and so it matters how we worship God. And, and the way I make the point, usually I introduce the idea, of where did they get the idea, where did Abel get the idea to sacrifice a lamb? And uh, just picture it, you've got two guys sitting around, and they're going, hey, you know, God is really cool. Yeah, he is. You know, we ought to do something for him. Hmm, what, what we can do? Um, hey, I know, let's get a lamb and stab it to death and set it on fire, and I bet God would really like that. And, of, of course, the point that I'm getting at is they didn't just come up with that, but that, that Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice by faith, Hebrews 11, and faith comes by hearing, Romans 10, 17. So, obviously, God had instructed, given them some instructions. And there's reason why God would <coughs> sacrifice. It foreshadows the ultimate sacrifice that's going to take away our sin. But people always see that. They always go, oh, yeah, that'd be bizarre. Nobody would do that. That, that, that wouldn't make any sense. And yet, you know, when it comes to instrumental music, for example, we just think God would love this. Um, well, they do have the fact that in the Old Testament, God commanded it, yeah, fired it. So there is that. But what, what Chase has already shown us is instrumental music in the Old Testament was similar to a lot of other things that were intended to sp- teach a spiritual lesson. Yeah. And now in Christ, we have that reality and we no longer are living in the in the realm of the shadows. And kind of bringing it back full circle, I think what Edwin comments uh, is really helpful. <laughs> there was an interesting illustration his father-in-law used to make. Um, he says, imagine walking into the house of a friend. And as you walk through one room, you find instruments everywhere. Piano, organ, harp, drums, guitar, saxophone, all, all kinds of instruments like that. And then you walk into the next room. And there's no instrument whatsoever, not so much as a kazoo or a triangle. Would you think that was on purpose? That's, that's pretty helpful there. Yeah. Yeah. And it really is, because if you're, if you're reading through the Old Testament, I mean, like we pointed out uh, in the earlier slide, I mean, you're, well, let me get my slides back. Sorry, guys. I mean, you are seeing this stuff all over the Old Testament, all the way back from Exodus, all the way into Second Chronicles 29. Uh, I mean, hundreds of years between them. And you're seeing it all over the place, and you're seeing it all over the Psalms as well, especially in the last five or six Psalms, um, in the praise Psalms. And so I think if, if just naturally you're reading that and you go to the New Testament and it's nowhere, that would be kind of shocking, but it's clearly trying to tell you something. Mm-hmm. Maybe, let me, let me mention, you just stated that it's, that it's nowhere. Uh, so a, a very common counterpoint to that is, well, you do have those two passages in Revelation that mention harps, uh, one in Revelation 14 and one in 15, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but, but let's just be realistic. I mean, read both of those passages and tell me if they are intended, to, if anything else in those verses are intended to be understood literally or, or physically, um, or if that's not imagery uh, that's that's being given there, um, uh, you know. It, sure. I, I, I I'm certainly not going to accuse everybody of this, 
But if you look through from the the rest of the New Testament, and, and Edwin's illustration I think is excellent there, um, and, and I say that in part because he complimented me earlier. Um, <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, it, it, it's a great illustration. And then you have a couple of verses that mention them in very figurative language in the book of Revelation, which actually I think is pointing back to passages like Ezekiel, talking about the, the point of God's redemption and uh, harps being a part of victory and restoration and so forth, uh, but in figurative language in the book of Revelation. Um, it's grasping for straws, it seems like to me. And and this is coming from a vantage point of somebody who is a horrible singer and would often like nothing more than to have some piano drown me out so that I could sing out and not be embarrassed uh, from a carnal vantage point. That's the way that I often feel. Um, You know, but that's not what the scriptures are, are, are presenting for us. We can't take some figurative language passages in Revelation and ignore everything from Romans to, uh, to Jude. Um, there, there's, there's something clearly missing in all of that. And, and to, to, to just say that same thing in another way, the book of Revelation is doing the same thing the Old Testament does. It's taking, it mentions the altar in Revelation, the sixth chapter. It mentions the holy city, Jerusalem, and the tabernacle in Revelation, the 21st chapter. It mentions incense in Revelation, the fifth chapter, yeah. Revelation, the, uh, the eighth chapter. And when it mentions these things, it's doing the same thing with them that the Old Testament did. It used these things to talk about spiritual things. In the Old Testament, they were actually commanded to use these physical things, but it was teaching a spiritual lesson. The book of Revelation is using these these references to these physical things to talk about spiritual things. Um, so, so I think you're right. When we go to the book of Revelation and we see harps or trumpets, it would be it would be it's it's totally incorrect to say, okay, the New Testament Christians in the first century were worshiping this way, and we should be worshiping this way. No more is that true than that we should have, we should rebuild the altar, or the holy city of Jerusalem, or the tabernacle, or burn incense, all of which things are mentioned in the book of Revelation. The 144,000. What you have in the 144,000 is the the 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes but what's it talking about? It's using those Old Testament concepts to represent a spiritual idea, God's people upon the earth. And that, that's a good segue right there. Uh, <laughs> the last passage I have on here from John four twenty four: God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. I mean, th- this passage coming from John 4, the context, of course, with the Samaritan woman who is convinced that they need to be worshiping at Mount Gerizim with the other Samaritans. And of course, Jesus comes in and says, not so. Uh, Salvation is from the Jews, but there's coming a day, he says in verse uh, 21, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Uh, You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. An hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for such people the Father seek to be his worshipers. Um, there, there were these, this physical temple in Jerusalem, this mountain that you would go to, to worship God, but there's coming a day, Jesus is saying, where this will be done in spirit, no matter where you are, I think is the point. 
And, and, and so it was reflect. It, it was, I guess, it, that was the shadow in Jesus saying, it's coming, it's going to be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And, and he's saying that that which is spiritual is the true thing, it's the real thing, whereas that which was the, the physical temple was not. We have uh, a, a follow-up on, uh, on the two rooms. Remember the two rooms where one was filled with musical instruments and the other room had none in it, and was that on purpose, right? So the follow-up to that is, and this pertains to going to the book of Revelation for authorizing instrumental music. Uh, so if you are in your new musicless room, uh, this is again from Edwin, I think, and there's a picture on the wall of the previous music room, you don't suddenly believe that the house has two music rooms. <laughs> no, the, obviously the musical instruments belong in one room, even though you've got a picture of that room in the other room. This is the second week we should have just had Edwin on. Yeah, really. some great comments. I'll tell you what, next week, let's just, we'll just have Edwin do the show. And we'll, just, <laughs> we'll all take a vacation. Uh, guys, I can't seem to pull back up the chat window. Uh, I think this would be good for us to transition into what Karen had said. Would you guys agree? Yeah. Yeah. So Karen's again, just for uh, reference sake, um, uh, I've heard that Christians say that listening to CDs of acapella spiritual songs and live acapella performances of psalms, hymns seem inappropriate to them. Thoughts? You know, I misread this question when we when I said it was a good question, and it still is. I thought the question was, is it wrong to listen to recordings of instrumental uh, of hymns accompanied with musical instrument. But the question is different. The question is, you have a mechanical recording of somebody just singing with their voices. That's a question, right? Right. It seems to be, yeah. Or yes. a live acapella performance of psalms, hymns, and so on. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Where do you guys, I've got some thoughts about this. But where do you guys want to start with this? Oh, um, well, I would suggest we use the Bible. Nope, that, that, thank you, Joe. <laughs> I'll, I'll narrow it down there. All right. Um, so here would be my thought. I, I, I would go to 1 Corinthians 14. Okay, 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, and, I'll, and while you're turning there, I'll see if I can find the verse. Um, you're probably looking for verses, uh, I don't know if you're looking for verses 14 and 15 or if you're looking for verse 26. Uh, yeah, 15, 15. Um, uh, and so in this passage, you have uh, somebody singing and somebody else listening, uh, somebody praying, somebody else listening um, in, the, in the context that you have here. Uh, I have heard in, in for a long time, maybe I guess held the sort of default view that any sort of choir or any, any time in which one person is singing but the rest of the group is not, that, that that's not authorized. Every, everything that we have is, is congregational singing. And again, go back to those passages like Ephesians 5 or Colossians 3, um, and that's what it says there, uh, congregational singing. No, it's not. Um, uh, but, but those are the proof texts that, that are often used to say that if you're going to sing, everybody has to be singing. And I think this verse is not taking that into account. Uh, James five, other passages as well, don't take that into account. Some of our some of our hymns where we sing in parts, and you have the men's voices singing, and then they pause, and the women's voices come in, or you have the bass singing a bass solo or something. That would be problematic if 
if you had to have everybody singing simultaneously. Right. And so I would suggest that from this passage, one of the things, and, and this will be my application from it, feel free to disagree, uh, and I'm more than happy to learn more on this, uh, this point. Um, but it seems to me that if somebody has a song, you know, we have some, some friends of ours, Stephen Rouse, for example, a great songwriter. Mm-hmm. He has written a song. He could present that to the congregation. The congregation could listen to him sing that song, not for entertainment purposes, but for edification purposes. He's singing to us, we can then be edified by that. I think there's a danger, and and I'll answer Karen's question here. I think a distinction needs to be made in the heart of the person. Are you doing it for entertainment, for enjoyment, or are you doing it for spiritual growth? Right. I I think you're right. I, you know, whether, whether we have a situation where everybody is simultaneously singing the same words and the same notes at one extreme, or whether we have a situation where somebody uh, sings a line from a song or even a whole song, uh, exhorting a, a congregation with this spiritual thought, uh, I think either one of those could uh, come under the umbrella of what we read in Ephesians 5.19. But I think you're right when you get at this, this point of, what, what's going on here? Is this about praising God? Is this about in, encouraging and admonishing one another? Or is this about a performance? And here is, is a scene. So you have one person or three people get up on stage or up in the front of the auditorium, and they're introduced uh, as this fantastic singing group, and everybody applauds. Yay, they're great. And then they sing. And, and at the end of their singing, uh, everybody applauds, and whoever is kind of emceeing the whole worship service says, aren't they fantastic? You know, they're, they're really, you know, well, where was all the focus? Yeah. All they missed the, they missed the point. It's going to them. Yeah. Not, that's not about glorifying God. That's about glorifying these people and entertaining the audience. That's, yeah. I think, the different situation. I think a couple things. We didn't read specifically Colossians 3.16, but it says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Singing has a few purposes. One of them that's mentioned here is your teaching. It's able to teach something, uh, and you admonish one another with it, and and you can thank God in it. And if you've ever thought about this, first first, uh, Timothy, the third chapter, in verse 16, this verse is often thought, um, some of the different commentaries I've read, to have been an early Christian hymn that would have been uh, saying, and Paul is using it in his letter to Timothy as a word of exhortation. And so singing is a way of exhorting. Um, And one more point I just want to make real quick, guys. I think this is one of my favorite quotes. Uh, Let me just throw it up here real quick. Uh, It's by Spurgeon. David appears to have had a peculiar, well, Hang on a bit. David appears to have had a peculiarly uh, tender remembrance of the singing of the pilgrims, and assuredly it is the most delightful part of worship and that which comes nearest to the adoration of heaven. What a degradation to supplant the intelligent song of the whole congregation by the theatrical prettiness of a quartet, the refined niceties of a choir, and this is my favorite part, or the blowing off of wind from inanimate bellows and pipes. We might as well pray by machinery as praise by it. Singing has a purpose, uh, and if, if, if you are listening to a CD, but your purpose is not to glorify God, 
and singing along or, or even just following along, I think you're kind of missing the point of congregational singing. That's my thoughts on this. Yeah, and that so and you made the connection there because Karen also asked about what about listening to CDs of a cappella spiritual songs. And and I guess somebody would say, I, I'm not sure I've ever heard this in serious as a serious question. I think sometimes as a joke, you know, that's instrumental music. If you push a button, you know what? No, that's not right. I did sometime in the last few months hear about somebody who was opposed to uh, using an overhead projector or PowerPoint or anything like that because that was an instrument. It was a mechanical instrument. I think when we, when we go there, what we've done is we've taken a conclusion that we've drawn, which is right, that, that we should not use mechanical instruments to, uh, to praise God, that we should sing, that the heart is the instrument. And then we've taken that conclusion framed in our terminology, mechanical instruments, and all of a sudden now that phrase has become our standard, and we're going to judge everything by that phrase instead of by directly by what the Word of God says. And so if anything is regarded as a mechanical instrument, whether it be a machine that projects pictures or sound or whatever, then it must be wrong. I think what we've done there is we're reasoning from our conclusion rather than reasoning from the Word of God. Yeah. Let me just throw in one more thing about the listening to, you know, some group or on a CD or whatever. I, I, I do want to, to just issue a caution in application. I think it's easy because of the fact that we have music pretty handily everywhere, you know, on the radio, in a car, on our phones or whatever. But it's easy for that to just sort of become some background white noise, um, you know, as we're going about our activities. I, I, to me, I think we need to be cautious to not just allow worship to just sort of be filler in, in our minds. Uh, I, would, I would encourage a purposeful listening. Yeah, amen. Um, be respectful toward the, yeah. if, 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 if that is being considered as worship, then I think we need to be careful and respectful to it. Yeah. Well, guys, we are out of time this afternoon. I appreciate uh, Jeff and Joe coming on to talk about this subject. Appreciate the comments. Um, uh, stay strong, everybody, and Lord willing, we'll see everyone next Wednesday at 3 o'clock. Thank you, everybody. Thank you.